We're making good progress, we really are. That was Monday, followed by Tuesday. Has the coalition deal been a victim of your inexperience? Uh, look, we're making great progress. We've got lots to do this week and uh, we're going to make sure we get a strong, stable government for New Zealand. Are you feeling certain that you'll get a deal done by the end of the week? Um, look, I don't think anyone's in a position to say that they're certain. Still Tuesday. You three musketeers will get around the table today? Well, it's a new title. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Any time. Uh, look, I think that that's very possible. But then... Do you know where Winston is? Uh, he's very busy. But is he in Wellington? Uh, no, 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 no. Hang on, where's Winston? Having landed in Wellington that morning, Christopher Luxon and David Seymour had to rip the handbrake, pull a Yui and get the last flight back out of Wellington to Auckland on the same day. If Peters wouldn't go to Luxon and Seymour, Luxon and Seymour were forced to go back to Peters. It's still Tuesday, by the way. Did Winston stand you up? Oh, we've been talking all through today. Did Winston stand you up? That was supposed to Not everyone showed up, but hey, what can you do? There's no show with a Winston no-show, but finally, on Wednesday, two became three. We still managed to have a meeting with all three uh, in our home city this morning, so hakuna matata. Hakuna matata. It means no worries for the rest of your days. The next three years, however, we'll see. Kia ora, I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to the pod. Clearly still sticking points in the coalition negotiations, despite all those assurances from Christopher Luxon that they're making great progress towards a strong and stable government. One thing we know the three parties do agree on, however, is cutting waste from what they call the bloated bureaucracy. This week, in between airport stakeouts, I've been reporting on cuts in the public sector, both as a result of the savings targets imposed by the outgoing Labour government, but also changes some government departments are making in anticipation of the new national-led government, if we ever get one. Over at the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, they're exploring a voluntary redundancy scheme in case they need it, and they're doing things like cutting some spending using their own meeting rooms rather than hiring off-site spaces, and cutting funding for staff Christmas parties. Uh, I don't think I want to be the Grinch that stole Christmas. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade also made a preemptive strike, one which infuriated staff. They changed the way they used Te Reo Māori, scrubbing it from templates that they used to send ministerial advice. This was a directive from the Chief Executive Chris Seed, and staff understands this massive backlash followed. Around 300 staff signed a petition. Many others wrote into the bosses to give them a piece of their mind. There is a lot of uncertainty in the public service ahead of the incoming government, so that's what we've decided to focus the podcast on today. We talked to a public servant who we've kept anonymous about how officials are feeling right now and also speak with, well, he's probably the person who knows the public service better than anyone in the country. He is a former state services commissioner. He has enormous knowledge and, crucially, an objective view on what the proposed cuts under a national-led government will mean for the sector, but also the services that we all access. We have an extended interview with Ian. And Rennie. First, though, we can reveal significant job cuts at another government department. On December 5th, as the country swings into a present buying, tree decorating frenzy, dozens of staff at StatsNZ will be learning if they've lost their jobs. The Tova podcast has been leaked a consultation document sent to affected staff at the government department. Around 60 jobs are on the block. 
A source within Stat said staff felt the layoffs right before Christmas were being done to appease an incoming government. We put that to Stats. It didn't directly address the question. Instead, Chief Executive Mark Souden pointed to the 2023 census winding down, the 2028 census being more integrated, and the need for Stats NZ to manage its budget for the current year and into the future. Stats NZ has already been making changes, but it's simply not enough. So far, they've frozen recruitment, restricted travel, and actually reduced the travel budget by half. They've leased parts of their offices, extended the Christmas close-down period to get staff leave down, and like MB, they cut down funding for Christmas functions. But in the consultation document, it says, quote, given our most significant cost is our personnel costs and having exhausted all other cost-saving options, we now need to look at our structure and our roles. Soudan told staff in a statement that the changes wouldn't impact on the products and services it provides, but that Stats needs to do things differently with people wanting more data, new data and faster data. He also said, quote, I ask that our people are given the time and space they need to navigate this period. It is vitally important that they are treated with dignity, courtesy and respect during this time of change. Well, Mark, your people are coming to us and they are leaking to us because they're concerned. And we've had several public servants across myriad departments, Justice, MSD, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade Stats, the list goes on, telling us about changes and cuts in their organisations. Feel free to get in touch as well if you want to alert us to anything, but also if you want to share your views on what's happening in the public sector. Tova at stuff.co.nz. Back in September, when asked by Staff's Bridie Witten if there will be job losses at Kainga Ora, the government's social housing provider, Nationals Housing spokesperson Chris Bishop told her, Hope so. Nationals proposing 6.5% cuts across the public service. That is $600 million a year on top of the 1-2% to cuts Labor already has underway. It's no wonder that public servants are feeling anxious. We spoke to one in a major government department. We've kept it anonymous to protect their identity. Thank you very much for, for speaking with us today. And I suppose maybe if you could just start by giving us a bit of a sense of the feeling among public servants now. There must be, I imagine, a lot of uncertainty and, and fear. Yeah, there's uh, real uncertainty right now um, and a bit of a feeling of unease at what the future holds. You know, it's, it's change is never fun for anyone, but um, it's especially, um, you know, especially about why when you have an incoming government that have members that are sort of cheering at the demolishing of thousands of public service jobs. So, you know, it's a bit hard being this close to Christmas with that sort of looming over everyone when we've got pretty big workloads and we've got a, a lot to get on with. The government takes thousands of people to run it. And yeah, it just doesn't feel that great to be a public servant right now. Yeah, you point to the supporters of these parties, but also the rhetoric we've been hearing, I suppose, from the parties themselves. The public service has become a real political punching bag. How vilified do you feel right now? Do public servants feel right now? I mean, it's not its not a great feeling when, when you're coming in every day doing really hard, important work. I mean, there's a lot of really vital services that take lots of people to run them. 
the public service isn't perfect. There's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of frustration. You know, there are lots of people with big salaries, but it doesn't change the fact that most people are pretty, pretty passionate about what they do. And especially in some of the ministries that are likely to have a tougher time under a national act government, like the social ministries, you know, it's, it's really people there are not feeling so great. People in ministries or departments that have been told openly that they'll be cut, it's not been a nice few weeks knowing that you've still got to get on with the work that you've got to do, still doing important work that sometimes serves really sort of small communities, but, you know, nonetheless still important communities. And in a couple of weeks, you know, your work could be in the bin and you could be out of the job. So, yeah, it's not an ideal time for a lot of people. But what impact is that having on those staff members that you're talking about and their families as well heading into heading into Christmas? Um, I think most people just want to get through Christmas. You know, it'd be nice not to lose your job this side of Christmas. That would be, that'd be great for a lot of people. But um, it's a different experience depending what what ministerial department you work in. Some know, some people know they'll be all right. Some people know their work's probably not going to be attached at least for a couple months or years, or not at all even. But um, especially in, in in some of the ministries and departments that have been put on the chopping blocks. You know, the reason we have a lot more um, public servants now is because the government is bigger. It does a lot more. It serves a lot of lot more groups that it didn't used to serve. And so mm. those groups, you know, have people that are very passionate and, and pretty caring, a lot of them, and they're going to be the ones to potentially go. And it comes off the back, doesn't it? So a lot of those repeal programs you're talking about come off the, the back of enormous transformational reform programs under the previous government. So all of that work potentially lost. It's usually the nature of government. You do a lot of work knowing it might go straight in the bin after after a rash decision or, you know, change of direction. You know, when you, you've got things talking about like changing is stopping departments from using their um, Maori names. You know, there's mm. been all this group that's gone in to, to make that change. And the irony is, is it's actually going to take a lot of public servants' time to change it all back. So it's actually a waste in itself. But this is quite cyclical. You know, change of governments and, and you know, reform of the public services, you know, it's coming. Don't know how bad it'll be. You know, the trouble is that the last time there was a big freeze on on public service job numbers the work doesn't stop you know the work still needs to get done so it's just a, a boom for consulting firms and and contractors who get brought in to still do the work at you know a much bigger cost to the taxpayer that's going to be interesting isn't it because the the incoming national party led government is talking about this kind of these dual savings in terms of the backroom bureaucracy, but also cutting down on consultants and um, and contractors. What are you actually expecting in real terms from this government? Is there fat to cut, as some would, would put it? Well, I think the public service should always have a lens over it. I mean, people work very hard in this country and their tax dollars should be spent wisely. So they're all government department should always be keeping an eye on what they're spending, not just at the whim of the political government of the day. I think it's just given it'll be such a brand new, inexperienced government with 
most ministers being brand new, never having been ministers before, you know, there's always a worry about how much they'll trust the public service when they come in as a new government as a brand new minister, whether they'll listen to advice and whether they'll just make very rash decisions that are based on the public sort of popular statements that they've made and how that translates is probably into job cuts, probably into cuts of services. So, yeah, it's just a wait and see, though. And I suppose as well, one thing to to add is that the public service isn't helped, is it, by $40,000 lavish farewell parties, um, the, the likes of which we saw at the Ministry for Pacific Peoples? No, not at all. You know, Wellington is a bubble, and people think that public servants are you know, out for um, boozy lunches all day and, you know, home by three. And there is a bit of waste and it's not great when there are these examples of sort of extravagant waste. But most people in the public service look at that and go, we have never, ever experienced that in our department. Most team outings are pay for it yourself and Christmas isn't a big sort of soiree at some nice ballroom it's pretty tight on the budgets most morning teas at all still bring a plate which is the norm at most departments um but yeah when there are these outlier examples it just does not help all of us um and they shouldn't be happening anyway it's not a good good use of of hard-working taxpayers' dollars at all. Totally. And I can attest as well, I think I put in Official Information Act requests with almost every single government department off the back of that Ministry of Pacific People story, and no one else is really doing anything to quite that extent. Um, do you think that the, the, the centre-right government is going to have um, have a tough job? It's off-stated that the, the bureaucracy or the, the public service in Wellington is left-leaning. Do mm. you think that they're going to face a bit of an uphill battle in terms of wrangling the public service, which, you know, by its nature is neutral on, on paper? Yeah, I think so. I think there'll be this sort of, um, you know, jostling for position in the next few months of, you know, the higher-ups going in for their their meetings with their new ministers. And, you know, when there's a new government, there's a lot of teaching, a lot of educating about how the department runs, you know, what's going on. And then it'll be the sort of level of mistrust. And typically national governments have mistrusted the public service a lot more than left-leaning governments. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how that pans out over the coming months. Thank you so much for your time, and we You're wish welcome. you and and your colleagues all all the best, um, particularly heading into this uncertain period. Thank you. Thanks for covering it. Fascinating and I think necessary insight into how real life actual humans are feeling about the political rhetoric that's being directed their way right before Christmas. Now, Ian Rennie. He was previously the country's top civil servant, uh, a state services commissioner. He joined me in our Wellington studio and I started by asking for his take on what it's like being a public servant when the sector has become such a political punching bag. Look, it's it's a tough time, you know, because people are worried about the future. People are reading what's happening and 
in politics and unfortunately with uh, as weeks go by since the election and we still don't have a government mm. you know uh, there's a sort of vacuum and in a vacuum kind of you know, fears accumulate and and rumors abound and uh, the most important thing is uh, getting a government formed and getting its plan uh, out there and the, the public service is already making these cuts to baselines, 1% to 2% under a directive from the outgoing government. We're looking at a further 6.5% signalled under national, $600 million of savings every every year. What does that look like in, in real terms? Look, I think, um, I mean, the first th- first thing to say is um, we, we need to see what comes out of the coalition ag- agreement and mm. see whether 6.5% remains. Um, all goes further. All goes yet. all goes further, and 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 the point to make is that these expense reductions are are just to partly fund some of the proposed national and spending tax package. Uh, we ha- we have another wider issue, which is uh, you know the fiscal position is still in substantial deficit, and and savings will need to be made to close that over the next few years. So there may well be further. Uh, expenditure reductions. But coming back to the 6.5%, if you think about it, uh, at the moment inflation's about 5%. So put 6.5% on top of that, that's a, a real spending decrease of about 10%. So that's quite that's quite substantial, you know. Um, it, it's not going to be closed just by um, stopping funding the Christmas parties. You know, uh, agencies will have to work with new ministers about saying, look, what are the top priorities? Uh, what are the things that we may need to let go, even if we don't want to go, but are less important than some other things? So I think it's not just a question about tightening up and making efficiencies. I think there will have to be some choices about the quality of some services and the priorities for some ministries. And we'll talk about the, the services more shortly. One one department's been in touch this morning saying we've done a whole bunch of things around the edges, some of those things that you're talking about, Christmas parties and the like, but our most significant cost is our personnel and having exhausted all other cost-saving options, we now need to look at our structure. This is going to be happening across the board, isn't it? There are going to be mass job cuts. I think we need to, we just need to sort of draw breath a bit. I mean, before I came on the show this morning, I, I looked at the, the jobs website for government jobs. And at the moment, there's something like 2,400 vacancies mm. that are being advertised. So so there are still jobs being created, if you like. But that um, doesn't touch the sides of the 15,000 uh, that people uh, like uh, Act David Seymour are uh, talking there. about. I mean, I think, I think in a sense of um, my sense of having lived through probably the early 90s, cuts and in after the GFC, um, I think it's likely that there will be you know, some form of redundancies mm-hmm. over the next you know, probably year, 18 months. Uh, and in those two episodes, we did find that probably there were fewer job cuts than we expect, and that's partly because you know, ministry tend to work really hard to avoid making people redundant, unless mm. that's absolutely necessary. So they use things like you know, cancelling vacancies, using turnover, uh, maybe voluntary redundancy um, opportunities. But I think it's it's likely that there will be some forms of 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 redundancy. I think what we don't know is just where, how much, over what period of time. Redundancy comes with costs as well, doesn't it? Yeah. So is there no way of kind of reading the tea leaves or putting together the crumbs that we've heard from ACT, from National, to try and ascertain how many jobs we're looking at losing across the sector? David Seymour always points to that extra 14,000, 15,000 since 2017 and that the service was working perfectly fine 
back then? Could we return to, to 2017 type numbers? I, I think it would be hard to return to 2017 numbers across the board. I mean, for some ministries who face the public, they need to deliver more services as our population grows. We have a lot of immigration at the moment. So since 2017, population has grown by about 10%. So for some, but not all ministries, some of those people have just come in to service a growing population. In other cases, you know, the, the, the outgoing government have actually put in place particular programs and, and initiatives and public services responding to them, like, you know, the immigration mm. uh, service has been geared up to get more people into the country. And there's been significant growth there. One of the, I think, challenges for the new government will be to actually work through this quite carefully because I think it's it's not an area where you can just have a sort of bumper sticker uh, approach, let's all go back to 2017. Things have moved on and it's working through what jobs need to be kept in what places. Look, looking at what National has put in their, um, in their back pocket boost plan and the savings from the back office bureaucracy, reducing advertising, public relations spending, stopping work programs that aren't supported by the incoming government, leaving some job vacancies empty and stopping new hires, which you're speaking about, and stopping programs. Um, so n- no more refurbs and, and property upgrades. Is that going to cut it? Is that going to find them $600 million a year? It, it may or may not. I, I'd be a little bit sceptical. But as I say, I think the bigger game is not so much uh, the money that they need, the 600 for mm. their, their tax package. It's like, okay, for, for both sides of politics uh, in the election, neither side was particularly clear about how they were going to... They all wanted to close the mm. deficit. They weren't that clear about what's the plan. And uh, we're talking about a deficit that's uh, sort of 8 to $9 billion. Mm. So $600 million is pretty, million is pretty small. So if you're, if you're thinking about, okay, what's the plan to close the deficit as opposed to what's the plan to fund na- Nationals' tax plan, you know, I think that's a, that's a much bigger question. Right, and then so my question about services and, and, and what impact people might see day-to-day in the, in the services that they interact with, what does that question then become if we're moving from $600 million worth of savings to closing the gap. And that's the really important point because I think the focus has to be not so much on on the number of public servants but what's the outcomes we're trying to drive Mm. um, for New Zealanders and what are the smart ways to actually get an impact for New Zealanders in tight financial times. And um, what I suppose I'd be looking for from the incoming government is, is are they really just looking at a public sector that's smaller and sadder, if you like, Mm. or are they really interested about innovation and experimentation to actually deliver better services at a time where there is not a lot of money around, and I think most public servants uh, understand that. Is there an austerity bridge to get to that innovation point, though, and New Zealand is going to notice cuts to healthcare, to education, to those really core frontline services that that we expect and need. I think there's an important conversation about what services do we want to fund and, and what services do we not want to fund. So for example, probably you and me, we both benefit each year from a subsidy going into our KiwiSaver. Mm. Collectively, the government spends $1 billion on that year. $1 billion. Mm. You know, arguably, uh, well, I don't, I don't need that money. No, nor do I. We probably agree... Let's cut that and make sure we don't have cuts in, say, some forms of, of health spending. You mm. know, um, We know, for example, that fees-free 
uh, first year of uh, universities hasn't actually done much in terms of increased participation mm. in education. Well, maybe look at that. Um, we spend quite a lot of money through our tax system on supporting uh, movies to be made in New Zealand. And kind of we like that, but is that a higher priority relative to core education and health services? Mm. So part of the issue here, um, Tova, is about being clear about what really are the priorities because there are, are lumps of money that you could go after and and preserve some of those core day-to-day services that I think a lot of New Zealanders would say, yep, that those are really important to us. Aren't there other flow-on effects from the, the, the film subsidies, for example? I mean, the argument there is that we attract big business and investment into New Zealand and we also put brand New Zealand out there on the world stage, thus creating this this kind of cycle of investment. Sure, that, like none of this stuff is is okay. easy. Yeah. So everything has a consequence. And so the, the question is... Um, comes down to what are our priorities and what are the trade-offs we're prepared to to live with. I think one of the risks is if you put too many things uh, off the table, you end up with a very small base in which you're looking for savings, you know, like like some of these core public service ministries. Mm. So if, if everything else is, is literally off the table, then yes, potentially you're looking at very large um, reductions in those ministries. And what impact would we see if you nixed entire ministries? So Ministry of Pacific Peoples, TPK, Te Puni Kōkiri, um, the Māori Development Ministry, what happens if you get rid of entire ministries like that? Look, I think, t- 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 to be honest, um, I don't believe those changes would be sustainable mm. over time. I, I, I just think when the when the political pendulum swings, you, you would have those entities come back, maybe not in the same form, but but they'd come back. So I don't think those are, are, are permanent savings. And in the meantime, you lose skills and capabilities as, as people move on in their lives. You know, it's, it's far better to say, well, actually, what what does a, a really high-performing Ministry for Pacific Peoples look like? Mm. You know, and let's talk One that doesn't about, spend $40,000 ab- on farewell pays. Absolutely. What does the culture look like? What's its focus? Maybe, maybe it's a bit smaller than it is today. Maybe it's doing some different mm. stuff rather than say, well, let's let's get rid of the whole thing. And you touched on this kind of, it's almost ironic, isn't it, that these governments, incoming governments, talk about wasteful spend and bloated bureaucracy, but every time we have a change of government, we get this continuation of the reform and repeal and reform and repeal and undoing all of the work or a lot of the work of the previous government, thus wasting that time and money spent on those projects. Yeah, and I, and I think we have to accept that politics is about the contest of ideas and and different parties will always have mm. different views about what makes a good society. But I think one thing in the public sector that we've seen in certainly in the last 20 years is the cycle of rapid growth followed by uh, consolidation or contraction followed by rapid growth and now looking at another period of con- contraction. This boom bust I think doesn't, uh, doesn't serve New Zealand as well. I don't think it serves building a high performing uh, public service uh, well either. And just spinning back to examples like that $40,000 farewell party at the Ministry of Pacific Peoples, I act a national right that the public service has become a bloated bureaucracy. It is wasteful. Look, I think um, the nature of governments mean that uh, you always have to be a bit sceptical about how, how spending is used. A number of government entities have grown quite rapidly in recent years. And as you see, both in public and private sector, when that happens in organisations, there isn't this tight focus on efficiency. 
Now, I don't know that the issue is overall that the public sector in New Zealand is is bloated. You know, I, personally, I I won't agree with that. Where I think the issue is is that I think there's rightful doubts about what has been delivered mm. for all of that spending, and that's where I think the focus has to come not so much from the inputs, the the people, the dollars, but okay, what's happening to the services, the quality of services, getting our kids back into schools, you know, getting waiting lists down. Now. What, you, what is what is that? What, where did we go so wrong? I'm a big believer in um, what gets measured gets managed, mm. and and I think over the past few years there's been a a bit of a swing away from on priorities from targets, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's left a, a less certainty in the public sector about what really are the, what what really are people shooting for. Mm. I think certainly it's left a big void for the public about what what the hell is happening with their, their public services. So I think that's been part of it. I think, uh, if you like, the culture of COVID and the response to it was, was you know, um, money was thrown uh, to at a, at a huge crisis. But I think that sort of seeped into the culture more generally about some of that sort of frugality that I think has been... It truly a, did. Um, a quality of New Zealand and a good quality of New Zealand, I mm. think, was... Um, was lost for so many of us. Even working in the press gallery during that time, you know, millions became billions, and you kind of lost the the value of the zeros that were being added to some of the checks that were being that were being written. Do you think, um, from what we know, do you think what's being asked of the incoming government or what the incoming government is asking of the public service? Do you think it's possible? I think it's possible. I think uh, New Zealand public sectors have shown it uh, with previous governments. I come back to. It's not just a question about you know cutting the dollars. It's on the other side about mm. will new government encourage the kind of the the, the innovation, the, the new tools that will support the public sector make the best adjustment in the times ahead. And um, you touched on this earlier in the interview as well. The um, some of the the tweaks around the edges that we've been reporting on this week, so reducing spends on Christmas parties, trimming uh, discretionary spending at ministries, as things. That's not going to be the thing that shifts the dial, is it? No, I mean these are these are small amounts of money. Even within these these large ministries, mm. they're not going to deliver either a fiscal change, and they're not actually at the end of the day going to deliver a change in the services that New Zealanders receive. And what's your view on the fact that some ministries, and we've seen it at um, at at MB and at Justice and MFAT and others, we've been reporting on who are making these kind of preemptive changes in advance of the incoming government trying to read the tea leaves as to what the directives might be before we even have a government that's formed and is issuing directives. So I think there's two things. One is that some of these ministries are responding to the outgoing government's um, reductions mm. and they, they need to do that. I think the second thing is I think it's I think it's sensible for, for government agencies to be looking at uh, the environment that they're walking into and preparing for that, even mm. even if they don't know the the, the details, so to, to certainly make uh, stop making uh, decisions that they might regret in two or three months' time when a government says, "Look, we just don't want to do that, or it's way too expensive, or or whatever." So I think it is prudent that that ministries are are, are planning and thinking ahead. That we're seeing it, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, they're actually changing their use of Te Reo Māori for um, briefings and things that are being sent to the caretaker government before any directive has come from the new government about the use of Te Reo Māori. I mean, that seems nuts to me. Yeah, and and I and I think it's it's um, quite important that the 
the public sector doesn't sort of fall into a sort of a, like a culture wars uh, approach. And and you know if 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 there was a good reason for using uh, Tareo um, yesterday in communication engagement, well, there's no reason to change that today or 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 tomorrow. You mm. know. So I th- I think um, it's it, it it's important around some of these if you like wider cultural or social issues that the the, the public se- sector is thinking about, okay, well, what's really important for us to do our job effectively as opposed to look like they're responding to the um, political um, colour of the day? Because I think that leads to people then saying, well, you're pretty much politically aligned, whether you're wearing a, a blue tie or a red tie um, or whatever. Um, and I don't think the public sector wants to be in that position. Yeah, certainly. And I think that the senior leadership team at MFAT has had a fairly emphatic response from staff in terms of making some of those decisions um, unnecessarily. We have had a lot of public servants get in touch just finally, and who are talking about what's going on in their agencies, concerned about what's happening in their agencies. They're sending us letters and emails that have been sent out to all of staff from chief executives. So the officials are already leaking against the incoming government, which is actually fairly rare, isn't it? Is is the new government going to have its work cut out for it in terms of um, its management of the, the public service? I I, th- I think it's really important that the incoming government uh, thinks quite hard about how it wants to communicate with the public sector because I think there's a, there's a not-so-good outcome where it looks like the new government is just against public servants. From other things I've said, I don't believe that's the case. And also I think it's un- un- counterproductive because at the end of the day, the new government wants to get stuff done. To mm. do that, they need to work with, effectively with the public ser- service. And I think there is a, there's a narrative about, okay, yes, t- times are a bit tough. Um, we haven't liked some of the stuff we've seen from the outside because we think money has been wasted a bit. We do want to tighten that up. But we're focused around delivering better stuff for New Zealanders, and, and here's how we're going to do that. And I think if that's more of the of the narrative, then I think that's a messaging that more public servants would say, "Yep, yeah, uh, that seems fair enough." So I think there's a big call for the incoming government about how do they want to essentially, you know, in, engage and and work with the public sector. It is always such a pleasure speaking to you and just having a, an objective view from a from a place of extreme knowledge on this stuff. So I could keep going for hours, but I won't. I'll let you go, Ian Rennie. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Tova. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> he 
heaps of takeaways there from Anne Rennie. Here are some of the key things from my perspective. Ministries will have to make choices about the quality of some services and their priorities with redundancies likely, and that is despite the best efforts of leadership to shave costs now. Uh, Ian saying it's not necessarily possible to return the size of the workforce to pre-2017 levels, as David Seymour's been proposing, because population growth fuelled by migration won't allow it. Bumper sticker approach by politicians, and by that he means slogans and soundbites, won't work. Ian also acknowledges that savings will need to be made probably in the billions, but questions the right way to do it. The incoming government needs to decide whether it wants the public sector to be, quote, smaller and sadder or explore innovation and experimentation. He doesn't think overall that the sector's bloated, but does question some of what's being delivered given the amount being spent. And on the changes already underway... Ian thinks it's sensible to be proactive, but his point about departments like MFAT preemptively making changes to their use of Tadil, I thought that was really strong, that the sector shouldn't fall into cultural wars because it calls into question the neutrality of the sector, which is, I suppose, their North Star. Cutting Christmas parties, tweaks around the edges, that won't deliver the changes needed, particularly not if we want the books back in black. We need targets reinstated so the sector's working towards goals and getting it done. Cutting ministries altogether, like Tipuni Kōkiri or the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, as has been proposed by ACT, that's not sustainable. But yeah, I mean, there could potentially be very large reductions in some ministries. And the new government needs to have a good hard think about how it wants to communicate with the sector to keep the peace. I'll share my take on the coalition talks with you shortly as well. The upshot is just around the corner, but first. Time now for Snakes and Leaders with our National Affairs Editor for The Post and Sunday Star Times, Andrea Vance. Hello, how are you? Wonderful to have you with us. Hello, how are you doing? Oh, look at that. Still no government. Still, <laughs> surprise. Hang on, didn't we have a bet? Do we, do, am I five bucks richer? Oh, I think you might be, actually. I think you might be. I was trying to get on the stakeouts at Wellington Airport this um, this week, trying to get the journos to all make bets with me to at least get something out of this um, protracted negotiation period. Yeah, I know. Oh, well, checks in the mail. It could cover all your takeaway coffees at the airport. <laughs> yeah, or at least <laughs> half of one, $26.50 on sushi later. But let's not talk about that. Who was your, your winner of the week? <laughs> well, maybe I should make the, uh, the retailers and vendors at Auckland and... And Wellington Airports, maybe that maybe I should make them the winner. And I'm the, the loser, yeah, for sure. Because they've <laughs> certainly done a roaring trade from all the board journalists. But um, um, I actually have really struggled to come up with a winner this week. Honestly, I just couldn't think of anyone who's who's winning in this situation. The best I can do with is uh, Shane Jones because mm-hmm. I think he is kind of the light in the tunnel of all of this. Like I just <laughs> being cynical, I know that Shane's is imparting what Winston Peters allows him to impart. <laughs> um, but I'm also really enjoying Shane's biblical quotes. It's interesting your point about him imparting what, what Winston kind of decrees. I'm not sure if that was the case this week. I think there was a real sense from within the New Zealand First Caucus, because they all flew down to Wellington or flew uh. into Wellington from wherever they came from. And I think they were genuinely expecting him. So I don't know if they were in on Winston's kind of, I'm going to come to Wellington Surprise! No, I'm not. I wonder if they were um, if they were caught short just as much as Chris Luxon and and David Seymour were. And one of those has surely got to be your loser. Well, yes, that brings me neatly onto my loser. I have two losers of the week this week. Um, the the person in me that has strong feelings about manners and etiquette and behaviour uh, makes me want to make Winston 
the loser of the week because I just think that his behavior is childish and disgraceful. Mm. But I have to say the loser of the week is Christopher Luxon because he turned tail and returned to Auckland um, when Winston clicked his fingers and I just think you know from an optics point of view whatever went on and perhaps you know that we don't know perhaps there was a really good reason why Winston didn't make it to Wellington but he didn't communicate it and I just think (laughs) I don't know if that's a good enough reason well yeah I mean yeah if that was the reason then that is even more appalling but I just think it made Christopher Luxon look too keen if if I was on Love Island, I would say that Christopher Luxon's behaviour is giving me the ick because it makes <laughs> him look very weak. <laughs> Just don't, don't go because you no. immediately, as you say, every time Winston snaps his fingers now. Absolutely. Whatever the reasons behind it, and we don't know because no one's talking, but that is very much the impression that, that it gave. Less so for David Seymour, the guy just wants to get a deal done and sometimes he is like an overeager puppy anyway so but I just on a more serious point um I do also want to give um a dishonorable slash loser mention to the electoral commission because Mm. what a schmuzzle yeah what a schmuzzle they have made they had one job and they've managed to screw it up spectacularly so I do feel and I and I have had some signals from the incoming government that there needs to be some sort of inquiry as to what went down at the election just because at this point in time when misinformation and disinformation is a tool that's being used in other countries, and we did see it a little bit in this from the anti-vaxxers and the conspiracy crew in this election, I just think it's really important that they get this stuff right. And like I say, one job. Yeah, don't give them any ammo. And it's been like bit by bit by bit by bit as well, just when we thought it couldn't have got much worse than on election night running out of ballots or the e-registry going down or whatever. There have just been flaws upon flaws upon flaws from the Electoral Commission. So good. I'm glad to hear that the incoming government's going to be um, forcing a bit of a please explain there. Like I say, those are the signals that I've had. I, w- I wouldn't want to definitively commit to that, but that's that's what I've been hearing anyway. I'm from- here to help you leap to conclusions. It is my want. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrea. Always wonderful speaking with you. Enjoy the weekend and I may see you at the formation. Should we put another fiver on Wednesday next week? Uh, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> fool me once, fool me twice. <laughs> All right, well, I'll take the fiver. Thank you so much, Andrea. Talk to you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Now it is time for the Beehive Buzz. Let's bring in our political editor, Luke Malpass, with what we should be looking out for this weird and wonderful week. Hello, Luke. Hey, Toby. How are you going? Not much buzz around the Beehive. It's all buzzing around in Auckland. Oh, my goodness. More Beehive. We're in this weird holding pattern, Lukey. Christopher Luxon's strategy has been to try and keep all the content and in some cases even the existence of their various meetings when they actually happen, try and keep it under wraps. How's that been working out for him? Well, um, frankly, as a political strategy, I don't think it's been a very good one. It's a different thing when you're doing a commercial deal because everyone can walk away and there's all sorts of legal requirements around it. This time, because he's refused to give even any details or even have a photo at the top of the meeting or anything like that. It's just ended up with reporters camped out outside his house, which I'm sure he's not overly pleased about. And as is the way with these things, uh, details are coming out around areas where there's agreement, disagreement, and how the general vibe of the thing is. Yeah, it's it's just nuts to me because you can tell journos, hey, look, we're going to be here at this particular time, come and get a couple of photos, film us for a little bit, ask a couple of questions, whatever, we'll say what we can within the realms of what we can say, and then vamos. But they're not even doing that, and it's just creating this absolute circus entirely of their own making. So Yeah, yeah. politics in common with nature abhors a vacuum. 
you know. A hundred percent. What do you think the main sticking points are, Luke, in the negotiations and how sticky are they? I mean, there's a whole pile of areas, but on the policy side, um, there's, there's three. Uh, one is Nationals Tax Relief Package, in particular how it's funded. Mm. Both National and New Zealand First, I think, think it's a bit stupid in the current climate, but they understand it's a cool promise for election. However, the pots of money that National was going to use to pay for it, the, you know, the foreign buyer ban overturn and the tax on foreign buyers, um, the ETS, and there were a couple of other spots they were getting, getting cash from. I don't think either of National or New Zealand First too keen on those. So mm. working out how that might be paid for, whether they just say, well, we'll do the tax cuts, but we'll find all the you know cuts in time for the May budget. Related to that, um, what happens to the Climate Emergency Response Fund, which is where all the money from the ETS goes? Nats wanted to pay for tax cuts, act prior to the election, something similar. New Zealand First is more keen to use it for climate adaptation, so basically use it as a way to build a bunch of infrastructure around the regions. What? Use it for the purpose of which it was designed? Yes, it's not their policy, actually, but instead of being like mitigation and trying to like pick winners and pay blue scope steel to reduce its emissions, that sort of stuff, they would just build a bunch of stuff in the regions. Uh, that would be ostensibly climate related. And the other one is uh, on sort of the broad area of co-governance and the treaty. Obviously, Act want a referendum, but I think probably they'll more settle around some sort of investigation into the growth and proliferation of the principles of the treaty. Interesting. It's so fascinating, isn't it? I've also heard as well from sources within the two minor parties in the negotiations that they are just, I think they're kind of frustrated and unimpressed with the way Christopher Luxon has been handling all of this too. So I think there's a bit of animosity that's growing there, but no doubt they'll get to a point where they can plaster over those cracks and hopefully try and keep the government together for uh, not just these weird weeks, but the few years to come. Yes, we'll await the final deal with... um a great deal of interest. Hey, Lukey, thank you so much. I will see you again on the stakeout trail. Um, good luck. Go well. Godspeed. I'll talk to you shortly. Thanks so much, Tyler. Catch Jacinda Ardern's face would harden, her eyes narrow, and her reply would be returned in the most excoriating tone imaginable. You knew it was coming. Hell, you brought it upon yourself. Because this was the treatment journalists came to expect between 2017 and 2020 from the then Prime Minister any time questions arose which suggested her coalition partner, Winston Peters, was calling the shots, that the tail may have been wagging the dog, that she'd lost control of her government. It was withering. The response was worth it because the questions were warranted. Winston did misbehave. He did act out to remind Labour he wasn't to be trifled with, that he commanded respect. But in hindsight, that was nothing. Ardern ruled that cabinet and ran that coalition with an iron fist compared to this week's frankly jaw-dropping display of simpering servitude from National. If any uncertainty existed last week as to who was in charge of this pantomime that has become our incoming government, it was swiftly cleared up in the diamond clarity of Tuesday night. Christopher Mark Luxon, a grown-up, a 53-year-old man, a former chief executive of our national airline, the prime minister-elect of our entire country... You can imagine the scene now, sitting in his Wellington apartment, view of the beehive out the window, reaching for his Pepsi Max, taking a knee and chugging back his pride, the effervescence of the bubbles barely helping the jagged edges go down. 
Pride successfully swallowed, he returned to Wellington Airport, at which he'd arrived just 12 hours earlier, to board the last flight back to Auckland, which he'd left just that morning in the hope of a three-way meeting with his future government chums. You know the reason by now it is already etched into the parchment of New Zealand political history. The moment the country's most experienced politician ghosted one of its least experienced in one of the most stunning and humiliating displays of political brinkmanship. We could dish a serve to David Seymour here too, the third player in this tumultuous troika. He too flew back to Auckland on the last flight, having arrived in Wellington on one of the first flights that same day. He too had been expecting a meeting with Luxon and Peters in Wellington, but... Here is where it gets even worse for our new PM. Bearing in mind that Luxon is the key interlocutor, the chief intermediary between Peters and Seymour, who do you suppose is responsible for these crossed wires, for these assumptions that Peters would follow the two men down country like a little lamb? Seymour was merely collateral damage following yet another rookie mistake from Luxon. Already Peters had taught him a lesson about getting ahead of the process after Luxon proclaimed he was keen to go to APEC, fully sworn in as a new Prime Minister, before actually securing a deal with his future partners. Peters swiftly put pain to that. A senior Labour MP close to the negotiations and government in 2017 told me, this is absolute bullshit. Incredulous that a new government had not yet been formed. That was Monday. I got another text when Luxon did his Yui back up to Auckland. Oh my God, this is turning into a total farce. I mean, Labour would say that, but on this, they're not wrong. Another text. They've obviously pissed Winston off. He does this kind of thing to make a point. Twice already Chris Luxon has had to eat humble pie. Twice he's had to hurry along when Winston Peters has snapped his fingers and snipped Gus on. And this is before we even have a government yet. The upshot is, if Ardern thought she had it bad with three years of journalists asking who was actually pulling the strings in government, Luxon is about to get the on-steroids version. I can already picture his face hardening, eyes narrowing, the excoriating tone. Problem is, after this week, it's going to be far harder to make his case. That was my take. Now it's time for yours. Producer Chris is with me. What have you pulled from the mailbag this week? Hello. Hello. How are you? How do you do? I'm, I'm all right. Good. Thank you. Yeah. So, you may have heard that there's been a little bit of talk about whether the coalition talks are taking too long. <laughs> We've had a large number of emails broadly split along the lines of it will take as long as it takes to get it right versus get on with it. Get on with it. About a 50-50 split, I'd say. I reckon some of those in the former camp are going to move into the latter camp pretty darn swiftly if this thing doesn't wrap soon. Patience is waning. But it turns out that maybe things aren't that bad here in Aotearoa. Uh, we had an email from Louis who pointed out that in other countries, limbo land has occurred for, well, years. Mm. I covered a few of these at the European elections where they've got proportional representation. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Louis noted the Belgium post-election coalition chats back in 2011 set a world record of 589 days without a government. And then it broke its own record at the height of COVID, racking up 652 days without a clear winner. Uh, though in fairness, they were dealing with a, a seven-party coalition. A seven-way. A seven-way. Though, what's harder, a seven-way coalition or a three-way with Winston? I'll leave you to ponder that. 
Chris. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. Uh, other political stalemates include Cambodia taking 354 days to form a government a couple of decades back and Iraq needing 290 days following the first post-Saddam Hussein elections, but I think that one's kind of legit, really, given the circumstances. So. I think so. It's, I mean, and it's all relative. Chop, chop, fellas. Chop, chop. Ryan from Rotorua thoroughly enjoyed last week's pod featuring interviews with Jim Bolger and Helen Clark, two of the three former PMs who did coalition deals with Winston. I loved those interviews. They were great, weren't they? Uh, I've been reflecting on that a lot, and I know I've been banging on about it to you, but I just loved the fact that you can kind of learn no I, no, I completely agree. And especially when everyone's trying to read the tea leaves and figure out what's going on, actually leaning into people who have been there, done that, uh, with this wealth of knowledge like Jim Bolger and Helen Clark. It was, um, yeah, it was awesome. I, I think, think the point I was fumbling towards is that the older I get, I enjoy the wisdom of people older than me, perhaps. Mm. I, I think I still enjoy learning and understanding context and nuance and realising that I don't quite know it all. Unlike me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Ryan also discussed your written piece that appeared on stuff.co.nz that referenced the disagreement on whether to call the 2017 government Labour-led or a Labour New Zealand First administration. And Ryan writes, Labour-led would have made complete sense before 1996, but under MMP coalition governments, the size of your party is meaningless if you don't have agreement with all coalition partners. So, despite Labour having more numbers, they were impotent without New Zealand First support for policies. Winston understood this, but Labour and the media seemed stuck in the days of FPP, first past the post. Winston rightly calls out, Ryan continues, how silly framing election debates as major and minor party debates is because under MMP, size doesn't matter. And Winston seems to be the only one who understands this. I'm with Ryan on that latter point. I I kind of... I think you still have a major party who is clearly, you know, if you get the Prime Minister role and you're dictating the majority of Cabinet, then actually you are leading the government. So I get that. But I, I, I hear your point. And I think in terms of the minor major debates, a hundred P, like get them all out there. And I think that we could probably reduce some of these coalition negotiations that go on and on and on and on and on. If we had a bit more clarity from each of the parties, a bit more transparency in terms of what a future governing arrangement might look like over the course of the campaign and perhaps we need to hear a bit more of that rather than this I'm not going to tell you my bottom lines I'm not going to da, 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 get ahead of the negotiations actually get ahead of the negotiations tell us on the campaign what a national New Zealand First Act government might look like and this uh, negotiation period after the fact might be a bit swifter Sorry, I've got some views on this. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> um, as you said, Chris, there's there's also yeah, there's a definite split in the uh, in the emails on the views about the length of the the talks, how long it's all taking. But Richard in Christchurch writes. The true fault lies at the hands of the voters who voted to let Peters be in the situation he is. Richard described Peters as cantankerous. Fair. Before noting, I and that's Richard. Am in my mid 80s, so know what it's like to be his age, and he is tired. Here's to a rocky three years if that's how long the government lasts, and I am a member of the National Party. Interesting. Thanks mm, for your email. Very interesting. And finally, this week, Alfred got a little dramatic. He says, I don't normally write to reporters, but your articles on the New Zealand First Act and National Party leaders have shown a lot of humour. Quote, Have you spotted a possible Shakespearean tone to how New Zealand First is acting in the negotiations? 
Shane Jones quoting poetry is very close to mocking in nature and reminds me of Hamlet. Is Shane playing Yorick? Is Winston actually behaving as the king? Then we must ask, who is Hamlet? And Horatio? And who, in the end, will be killed? Hopefully not the ashes <laughs> of MMP democracy that National will leave. Let's see how closely Peters follows the plot. So good, Alfred. And my sixth form Hamlet brain is a little rusty, apart from the to be or not to be. Is it a soliloquy? Is it a what is that? Monologue. Yeah, soliloquy. I mean, that's something that I committed to memory in sixth form and will pull out occasionally. Still, if I had a few too many beers at a party, I am that fun. Um, but what kind of part is that? <laughs> the, cool, the cool kind of parties that I go to. Intellectual parties. <laughs> Um, but Josie is, he's totally a jester and Peters is absolutely shrewd like the king and I'm wondering if that then means that Perold Luxon is, is Hamlet but you've pulled a quote for me to read here because I did not remember this Polonius noted in Hamlet Though there be madness, there is method in it uh, Do you know what else Polonius said? What? Brevity is the soul of wit See ya You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There is a new episode every Thursday, and you can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on your favourite podcast app, you'll get the latest episode automatically and keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts. Thanks to our production team, Aaron Darman, audio editor extraordinaire Connor Scott and executive producer Chris Reid. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. A week is a long time in politics. Gosh, it certainly feels like it at the moment. Anything could happen. We got you. Kakite. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz/support.